Hey guys. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. All right. Wow. Thank you, Bo. Um, I guess I should tell you guys a little bit about myself. Those of you who don't know me, uh, I've been I was born and raised here in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm kind of I'm a lot different than Bo. My life story is a lot different than his in that I was raised in what I would call the paradigm of love, in that I had godly Christian parents. I went to church every week. You know, actually, this church was my fellowship since I was four. Been here my whole life. You know, I've known Bo my whole life. But um, the problem with me is not that I was abused. The problem with me is not that I was manipulated or that I didn't have enough information to see the love of God. The problem with me is me. It's that I'm a wicked, sinful human being. And it doesn't matter how much good input you get. If the output is wicked, you're going to seek what you're going to seek. So at the age of 13, I started getting involved in, in lust, in this paradigm of lust. And, and the thing that I used, it actually wasn't pornography. I used stuff that you guys see every day, TV, movies, things of that nature, to gratify myself. And I could tell you guys, years before I saw porn, I was looking at porn, in that my whole life had become porn. Every relationship in my life, not just the women that I lusted after, which was pretty much every girl, because of how lustful a guy I was. You know, that was basically my standard. If you're female, I'm into you. But And it wasn't just that idea of just lusting after girls, but I lusted after everything. Everything was about me, you know? My relationship with my parents was never about all that they did for me. It was about what they're not doing for me. I became very selfish towards them, and I became very ungrateful towards them. My relationship with my brothers and sisters was all based on me. So I became bitter towards them. You know, and my friends, it was always about what they can do. You know, how funny is that guy? Uh, how, much, how much fun do I have with this person? And that's how I depended on my friendships. See, it was never about what I could give. It was always about what I can get. My whole life became porn. And I can tell you this, someone who's living in addiction, that's their life. That's their, their viewpoint on reality. They can't get away from it. I couldn't get away from it. And guess what? You don't even know that you have it. You think you're doing fine. But spiritually, we're given a gift. When we come to Christ, we're given a gift. And it's called the Holy Spirit, and it dwells within us. Nobody had to tell me what I was doing was wrong. I knew it. Because every single time I did it, I felt conviction in my heart. This is not right. And I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it until my conscience became seared. And it became easier for me to determine that there was no God rather than deal with a God who's one day going to hold me accountable for everything I was doing. That scared me. That scared me. The idea of standing before Almighty God and having to give an account for the things that I did. So it was just easier for me to just say, God doesn't exist. It's a fairy tale. And that's the world I lived in for three years. And that was depressing. Because if there's no God, there's no hope. If there's no God and my sin doesn't satisfy, then is it going to get any better? See, my sin didn't satisfy me. No matter how many girls I looked at, there was always someone hotter. There was always someone better. There was always something else that I could be doing. And it was never good enough for me because that's the lustful mentality. You never fill the gap. And so the more I pursued it, the more depressed I became. I indulged my flesh in whatever way I could think 
in this sin, but it never, ever satisfied. And so I became massively depressed, thinking about suicide all the time. You know, it just it just seemed easy to me. It, it was even to the point of suicide wasn't even a big deal to me. It was like, well, if I died, I died, you know? What value is my life anyway? It's not something that could be taken from me because it holds no value. And it took until I was about 16 years old for God to finally call me back into his family. He made me realize that the path I was following had nothing to do with a theological basis. It had nothing to do with intellectual basis. It had everything to do with the fact that I just didn't want to believe him. But whether or not you want to believe in God doesn't change the fact that he exists. Truth is not subjective, and God is not subjective. And he showed me that. So broken, I came back to him, and I was expecting, man, I'm back in, I'm back in the family, right? And I was reading passages like, man, like I'm a new creation, you know. And all these beautiful promises that we hold close to our hearts as Christians, you're a new creation. If God is for you, who could be against you? You know, the battle is mine, saith the Lord. And I was like, man, I have a desire to be free from this. God is my Savior. He goes out before me, so I'm going to win. <laughs> now I said about two months. And I was right back in it. And I was like, what the heck is going on? You know, so I, I just kept getting back up, kept fighting, kept fighting, kept fighting, kept falling, kept falling, kept falling until the falls became more frequent and actually added on to this newfound religion, this newfound relationship with God is now torrents of guilt and shame that I had suppressed for years of how wicked I was. And I was already utilizing porn to try to satisfy something that was lacking and now I have something else lacking, self-worth. I felt broken. So guess what I did? I went back to my God with a little G. I went back to porn, and I indulged in it. Now I'm not just viewing things on TV. Now I'm viewing things on the Internet. I'm watching actual pornography now, and that's not helping me. And every single time I did it, I felt destroyed, and I felt like a hypocrite. I felt so foolish. You know, and there's that idea in your head of just like, why don't you just stop, you know? Why don't you just stop? If it's a problem and it's hurting you, just quit doing it. And I tried and I tried and, I, and it, it never worked. It never worked. So for years I, I struggled under this burden and, until I, I determined that I didn't want God in my life again. But this time instead of, I had already come to the conclusion God exists. He's not subjective, right? I can't deny his existence. But I could leave his family. He tells me I have a choice. So I prayed to him and I said, God, I, I want you to leave me. I want you to leave me. I want you to get out of my life because I would at least like to be kind of happy in my sin than to be completely miserable in you. I got to tell you guys, if you're in sin, you know this to be true. There's nothing more miserable on this planet than a hypocritical Christian, than someone living a double life. There is nothing more painful or more depressing on this planet than a hypocritical Christian. Because you got way too much of God in you to be happy in sin, and you got way too much of sin in you to be happy in Jesus. So the result is brokenness all the day long. So I prayed to God. I was like, you know, just, just you know, take a hike. You know, I, I'd be happier that way. But he, he showed me Romans 5, where it says, where grace abounds, I mean, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And in that, that statement was that idea of God is not going to leave me. Even if I want him to leave, and he has every right to leave, his love surpasses my sin, his grace covers everything, and he will never stop loving me. And he will never stop trying to save me. And that knowledge cut me so deep, so much deeper than if God's like, well, you've got to stop. 
with that knowledge that he's going to keep loving. How can you sin against someone who loves you that much? How can you hurt someone that loves you that much? So that gave me the motivation to just keep fighting, but I, I still I couldn't, I couldn't kick it. And I entered the Marine Corps, which is a highly sexualized culture of guys who are just into porn. Like my buddies, they would watch porn, but they would watch it together. Like it was something to pass the time. They would just have it on, and they would all be just like watching it. I'd walk in the room, they'd all be just watching it. You go in their rooms, they'd have porn just laying out. You go in the bathroom, there's porn magazines everywhere. Porn is everywhere, and it's in their talk too. See, that's something I also didn't understand, is that the way I talked was porn. Oh, she's hot. Well, what does that mean? Is that love? To say that? Is that what God would do? Is that what Jesus does? And well, I like that part of her and not that part of her. And we would compare girls and stuff like that. And I would read magazines and stuff like that. See, I would compromise in my head to be like, well, Maxim's not porn. <laughs> Anything that you use in your life to gain arousal through lust is porn. It's porn for you. That was porn for me. No wonder why I couldn't break free. So after my second deployment, I did, I did two, I came back from Afghanistan, and um, this idea, this mentality of, well, porn is the world's fault. You know, The way that I am is the world's fault, you see, because girls are dressing skimpier today, and, and there's porn, and the TV is all sexualized and all that stuff. I realized that that's not the problem. That's not the problem at all. The problem is this heart, and that can't be fixed by turning off the TV. It can't be fixed by closing a book. Because I went to Afghanistan, a place with no porn. I saw a world with no porn, where the women have to cover up everything, and where they're objectified in that way of abuse and demeaning them. And if you're raped, it's your fault for looking pretty. And so I was in this culture, and guess what? It didn't stop my heart from lusting. I would look at these women underneath their burqas and stuff like that, and I would lust in my heart of being like, I wonder what she looks like underneath that. And my brain just went to town. And I lusted, and I lusted, and I lusted. And so after knowing that, I came back. I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Even if I lived under a rock, the, the heart is still wicked. Even if I lived under a rock, my brain still has so many porn images inside of it. Am I always to be broken? And that way of thinking of life just completely depressed me. And I talked to my friends because they'd say things to me like, dude, I quit smoking for a month. And then I picked it back up. And then my brain, I was just like, well, <laughs> if you picked it back up, you didn't quit. Quitting means you stopped. And that idea really depressed me because then it got turned to me. Well, I guess you can never really quit, can you? You're always an addict. And the best you can hope for is maybe a good streak. Maybe a couple years and then, yeah, and then you fall back into it. And then you get back up and you keep going. And I was like, that's really depressed. That's the hope that I have. That's the hope that I have. God in his grace, in his mercy, in his sovereignty, he led me to setting captives free. He led me to actually going through the Bible because in all my porn, I would ignore passages that God's trying to speak to me. And I would be, I was in the Bible. It's not like I wasn't in the Bible. It wasn't, it wasn't alive to me though. I would read books and I wouldn't get anything out of it. It became a chore to me. Religion was just a chore. It was something I did. You know, and I certainly wasn't following anything that the Bible said. And so God took me he took me through this course. He humbled me. And he's like, okay, we're going to go through this again. But this time you're going to pay attention. 
And he took me through elementary principles, stuff that I had known since I was born, that I had been raised with, but stuff I had never applied in my life. And here's the problem with being a Christian for a long time. Your pride will raise up in you, and it's you're supposed to know that. So you can't ask, because then you feel embarrassed. Well, I'm going to go through this with you. I'm going to go through my journey with you, and hopefully it will answer some of the questions that you guys might have in your hearts. Number one thing, the first day, setting captives free, it says this, the glory of God is to be your motivation. The glory of God is to be your motivation above all else. And I thought about that. Was the glory of God my motivation? And I looked in my mind. What was my motivation? My motivation was I was afraid that people would find out. My motivation was I was afraid of what people would think. And my motivation was I was afraid of what kind of husband I was going to be. Does that sound biblical to you? Does that sound faith-motivated? Does that sound selfless? Completely, 100% selfish motivations of trying to get free. God's looking at me like you're trying to get free from lust by engaging in other aspects of lust, self-worship, and selfishness, and pride. No wonder why it's not working. How can God bless that? Psalm 115 says, Unto you, Lord, not to us be the glory. And in Judges 7, when Gideon is going out with his army, God weeds out his army and he says, there's too many, you will declare victory for yourself and thus you will gain glory. Isaiah 48:11 says, God says, I will not share my glory with another. It's his glory. When God created the heavens and the earth, when he created the universe, it says in Colossians 1 that all things were made by him, through him, and for him. It's for him. Why were you created? For God. That's why he created you. And is that wrong? Is that wrong that the God who breathed life into you desires you to glorify him with your every breath? It's his breath to begin with. You're borrowing it. And so I realized that this this has to be my motivation. God has to be my number one. And he hasn't been in my entire life. Never has my motivation been for him and for his glory's sake. It's always been for me. And God will not glorify an idol. And to this day, I praise God. Sometimes I'll just go to my room, I'll just fall on my knees, and I will thank God that he did not set me free during those years of bondage. Because if he would have, he would have been glorifying another idol. Oh good, you're out of porn, but now you're in pride and self-righteousness and judgment. And are those better in God's eyes? Are those better? The answer is no. And I didn't understand grace either. Because grace is the utmost of God's glory that he would show unmerited favor to you and to me rocks the heavenly scene. The angels in heaven look down at Jesus dying for you guys and they are blown away that he would die for people who do not deserve it. That he would call you sons and daughters who don't deserve it. That he would call beautiful that which has been maimed by sin. That rocks heaven. But the more I looked at my sin as something I had to get rid of to be worthy of God, the more I was glorifying self. I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to disband grace. God wouldn't have it. He loved me way too much to have it. You see, the only way that I could find freedom was by seeking His glory. By seeking His glory above all else. So, And I realized in my heart, I can't do that. 
I can't do that. I've been raised and brought up in every heart and every inclination in my life to think that everything's about me. In order to give everything to you, it takes something supernatural to happen. And I'm not capable of that. So I started praying. And I encourage you guys to do that too. Start praying. This is not just something for addicts in this room. This is something for everybody. Start praying that God gives you a heart that desires His glory, that yearns for His glory. It's for you, O Lord, and you alone, that I worship and I adore. Now, the second thing that I realized is the idea of the better pleasure of God. See, the problem that I was having, the reason why I wasn't satisfied is because I was seeking my own glory. And my own glory is lesser than the glory of God, so no wonder why I'm not satisfied. No wonder why those porn images are not satisfying the emptiness of my heart because the Creator Himself desired a relationship with me and I was too busy staring at His creation to notice and give glory to the Creator. How can you be satisfied in that? And those of you in this room who are seeking satisfaction in anything less than God, I got something to tell you. You're never going to find it. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. God challenges you to taste and to see that He's good. And those of you in this room who have been hurt, understand this. The reason why you've been hurt has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. The reason why I was lusting was not because the girls weren't good enough. The reason why I was lusting is because God wasn't good enough. And even if I was married, no girl would be good enough for me. None. Because if God himself is not enough for me, how could a fallen sinful woman be enough for me? How could you be pretty enough for me? How could you be kind enough for me? When the most beautiful being in the universe is staring right at me saying, I want you, and that's not enough. The most beautiful being in the universe is, is forgiving everything I've done and affirming me and glorifying me and praising me and literally saying that I'm beautiful in his arms. That's not enough for me? How can anything that a woman does be enough for me? There's greater pleasure in God. In fact, it's not better pleasure. It's the best pleasure. There's nothing higher than it. And I'll even go one step further to say it's the only pleasure. Everything else will ultimately leave you dead completely dead, empty, naked and deceased without God. He's the only thing that's going to satisfy. And I started thinking in my head, I was like, okay, well, is God pleasurable? Well, I knew the Bible, Psalm 1611, right? In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36.8, which is one of our favorite psalms in the Better Pleasure crew, is you will give them... You will give them free reign. You will give them drink from the rivers of your pleasure. Rivers of it. Of pleasure coming from Him. I knew those passages. But then I looked at my life. I was like, well, are my actions showing that God's more pleasurable? Am I actually living it? And you guys could take stock in your life. When you're feeling down, when you're feeling depressed, where do you turn? If it's instantly like, dude, I need God. I'm feeling down. Dude, I'm going to go to Jesus. He's so, so pleasurable. Why wouldn't I? Man, I've kind of had a rough day. Man, I want to go read my Bible. Well, you know, like, man, this week has been so rough. I've been so busy, so worked to the bone. I need to go to church. But instead, what do we do? When those things happen, we immediately get rid of God. Oh, I've had a rough week. I don't want to go to church. I'm too tired. i got a headache. Man, just i got a busy day tomorrow. I don't even want to get in the Bible. I don't have time. 
You know, financial problems happen. Man, I don't have enough money to give to God right now. I need it for me. <laughs> See, the glory of God is never on our minds. The pleasure of God is never in our hearts. And there's a saying that I really like. Logic is always trumped by passion. If you ever wonder why addicts keep going back to the thing that's destroying their life, it's because of that sentence right there. Logic, no matter how many logical excuses that you give for yourself of, well, I won't do it because because it's bad for me. No matter how many times you tell yourself that, when the temptation comes, when that passion for your pleasure comes about, none of it matters. I wish it was like that, right? Where you can just go to a crackhead and be like, hey, dude, this is wrecking your life. Oh, man, I never realized that. <laughs> oh, dude, like, thanks for telling me that this is bad for me. I never knew, man. And that, that was it. And then he's free. They know. They're living the destruction of their sin. They know it's bad. It doesn't stop them. Jesus says, the thief does not come except for steal, kill, and destroy. Lust enters my heart and your hearts with the set purpose and goal of destroying. That's what it's for. That's the intended purpose by the one who is using it on you. That's Satan. You have an enemy. And he hates everything that's happening in your life that's good. Everything. And he will do whatever it takes to destroy it. And Satan is smart. See, this idea of better pleasure of Christ, the way that I understand the better pleasure of Christ is understanding the fact that I'm accepted by Christ. And Satan knows something. Your sin can't separate you from God. It can't. It can't. That would be illogical. It says that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Not while you had it all together. He didn't give you a a five-step plan to get on track, and then he said, then I'll accept you. He didn't give you an interview process. He accepted you as you were, broken, with nothing to offer him. The idea that you could out-sin grace defies grace. But Satan knows something. He knows that he can trick you into thinking that you don't deserve it. He puts that wedge in between your relationship with God and says, well, this is what you are, a sinner. This is what you are, a porn addict. This is what you are, an alcoholic. This is what you are, but God says, no, that's what you were. Even though you still do it, that's what you were because my blood has covered and made you new. That's what it means to be a new creation in Christ is to see yourself with different eyes, the eyes of your Father who loves you. It's different. See, but Satan can destroy that pleasure. And how can you enjoy someone when you think that everything, every time they look at you, they're angry at you? Do you imagine hanging out with someone like that? Do you guys imagine being married to someone like that? They're just always disappointed. Man, you're not this. Not as good as that, dude. But is that how God is? The answer is no. Seeing myself in his eyes gave me pleasure that I had never experienced before. It gave me a thirst for him for the first time in my life. No matter what it cost, I went after him. And even in the times where things weren't going so good, Because guess what? It's going to happen. The joy experienced in God is greater than the greatest joy I experienced in my sin. In the midst of trial. In the midst of the worst trials I've ever been through, which have happened in the last two years since I've been free. The worst trials. God has been that source of unbelievable joy and strength for me. He's better. He's better than what you're doing. And until you have a passion for him that exceeds your passion for porn, you will never be free. Because every single time that passionate, 
lust comes back into your heart, you're going to go right back to it. And the way to fight it is not to get married. The way to fight it is not to see your wife as better. Because you'll never see her as enough. And your heart's what's wrong. You have to settle that right now. And start praying about it. God, help me to delight in you. I love those Psalms where he talks about delighting in God. Like, wow. I I love Psalm 19 where he's like, man, I, I go into your word and it's like it's more precious to me than silver or gold. It's sweeter than honey. I love those verses because I'm like, wow, God, give me a desire for your word like that. Where I can look at your word, I'm like, whoa, man, you love me. It's beautiful. You love me. What more do I need? Now, this is the number one way to bring glory to God. This is the number, if you're wondering in your brain, how do I bring glory to God? This is the number one way, is seeing Jesus as pleasurable. Satan's whole purpose in the world and what he's doing, the reason why there's so many temptations, you ever wondered why there's so many temptations in this world? Why are there so many religious systems? Why? Because his point, his thesis statement for mankind is there's better things for man than God. I can prove it. I can prove that I can make better things than what you can, God. You want to glorify him? See him as better. See him as better. See him as the goal which is something I never saw him as either. I always saw him as a means. God, grant me freedom from this sin. I'll do whatever you want. Just give me freedom from this sin because this thing's wrecking my life. I need you to free me from this sin. Well, what's the goal? The goal is now freedom from the sin, which I told you is impossible. Because freedom in your brain means that you're never going to lust, you're never going to look at porn again, you're never going to... That doesn't exist. You live in a fallen, sinful world. There will be a day where you're going to be perfect, perfect and complete in him, But unless he comes back for you today, it ain't today. The goal has to be Jesus. You have to see him as everything. Because when you get knocked down, and you will, you're going to be like, well, my goal wasn't freedom anyway. It was you. So even in my failure, I'm going to glorify your grace in my life to forgive someone who's fallen as me. And I'm going to keep going after you with everything in my heart. It doesn't change anything falling. It doesn't change anything going back. Because God has become everything to me. Freedom is not the distance of time between falling. Freedom is every moment of pleasure you spend with your beloved, and that is Christ. That is what freedom is. And that sets you free to even know that. You have to understand it. Another way to glorify God is through your weakness. And that's where we go to confession. Like I said, the reason why I didn't want to get, the reason why I wanted to be free in the first place was because of my reputation. I was afraid of what people thought. And God's like, well, we need to get rid of that. We need to get rid of your pride. And the way we do it is you start telling people. You start telling people that you look up to. So I went to Bo and I told him. Confession has nothing to do with what you're going to get out of it. Okay? Because if I confess for what I'm going to get out of it, well, I need to tell this person because I need to unload That's not confession. That's venting. And it's motivated by lust. I want to tell this person because I want compassion. It's not confession. That's lust. But if your motivation is, well, I want to look less so that God looks more. I want to show the inward parts of my heart that are so deceased so that God shines like a sun inside of my heart that people see his goodness in spite of my evil then confession has power. 
because it's not about you anymore. It doesn't matter how the other person receives it. It doesn't matter what information they give you. It only matters that he is glorified and if he is truly your beloved and the glory of him truly is the greatest pleasure, then we should run and rejoice for the grace of confession, which I definitely have in my life now. It's a joy. It's a pleasure to confess. Not that the process is pleasurable. Not that the process is pleasurable, but it's like if you broke your arm. Okay, what if you were like, well, I don't really like the doctor, and that's going to hurt, so I'm not going to go there. Then what's going to happen? You're going to be crippled for the rest of your life. But you can go to the doctor with quote-unquote joy because he's going to fix you. It may hurt more, but it's going to fix you. It's going to make you whole again. James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses one to another, that you may pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. God never intended his bride to be this self-righteous bunch who go to church and say everything's fine, and then they go home and they wallow in their sins. God intended his bride to be a place of openness. Another thing that confession does in my life, when people confess to me, it gives me a chance to shine Christ, doesn't it? When someone confesses something to me, especially if it's a sin against me, now what do I have to do? I have to show them grace. I have to show them compassion. I have to show them mercy. I have to love them in spite of the fact that they're fallen. That kind of sounds like unconditional love, doesn't it? Isn't that a beautiful trait that we all want? But how can you gain it if no one confesses to you? Grace is only grace if an offense happens and it's known. Okay, if I was in my parents' house and I broke something that they didn't care about and they didn't even notice, and I was like, 10 years later, I was like, hey, mom and dad, by the way, I broke that painting that you hated. Oh, I forgive you. Well, that's not really grace because they didn't care. But if I break their favorite artifact or whatever, this, this expensive, priceless thing, and they come to me like, oh, I forgive you, that means something. Because I know that I broke something of value. I did something that was painful to them. And yet, in spite of the fact that I didn't deserve it, they forgave me. That's what God does for you. That's why it's grace. You have to understand that you're wrong. Confession helps that. Because the more you talk to people who are struggling in the area that you're struggling in, they're going to be able to point out to you the things, dude, your problem's not just porn. Your problem's this and that and the other. And dude, that sentence is porn. Okay? But it's okay because we love you. And we're going to pray for you. And there's better things for you. And God's going to work in you, man. Conviction are like growing pains in the Christian walk. Man, woe to the man who rejects conviction. For you will be a spiritual toddler for the rest of your life. Hey, it's cute when a little kid is crawling across the ground. It's kind of depressing when a 20-year-old man is crawling against the ground. Isn't it? How many of us have been Christians for 10, 15, 20 years and we're still crawling on the ground? How do you expect to grow unless you're doing the things that God tells you to do? How do you expect to find victory unless you do the things that God tells you to do? God bless me. God help me to get out of here. Okay, here's how you do it. Well, I'm not going to do that, but I want you to bless me anyway. I've given you the tools. He says he's given you the tools. Now all of it, and I want you guys to understand this too, it's grace. I don't deserve confession. I don't deserve confession. I deserve to wallow in hopelessness by myself for the rest of my life because of what I let into this heart. I let it in. God didn't force it on me. No one forced it on me. I let it in. I deserve to struggle alone. But God gave me a body to encourage 
and to bless me and to strengthen me and to pray for me. It's a grace. Why am I not using it more? Confession's important. It's beautiful. And I hope you guys understand that. And I hope that you have examples in your life of people who look at confession as a joy. Hey, I'm a wreck, but God's awesome. God's awesome. And I love reading in the New Testament how Paul, almost in every letter, he gives a confession. Did you guys notice that? Almost in every letter. Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, not was, am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And in the Corinthians, both books of the Corinthians, he makes a confession about the things that he struggled with. First Timothy, a letter to a friend, says, I, Paul, chief among sinners, current, present tense, chief among sinners, at that moment. Yet God showed grace to me that I might be a pattern of good works to those around me. Glorify God. If Paul is not above confession, why are you? And why am I? If Paul saw it as a strength in his Christian walk, so much so that he desired to write it out, to humble himself like that, you read Romans 7, you realize that's a humbling chapter for anyone who's a leader of a church to make, that he was not just kind of struggling with covetousness, he was falling to it constantly. He was almost, when you read it, it almost sounds like he's in bondage to it a little bit. That's humbling to admit, but he did it. He saw it as his betterment to do that. And if you present yourself as everything's going good in my life and, oh yeah, everything's going fine, everything's going fine, everything's going fine, then now everyone attributes everything that's good in your life to you. And where does God get glory in that? But if I tell you guys, hey guys, I struggled with lust this week. And I did. Massively struggled with lust this week. I haven't struggled like that in a long time. And there were times where I let fantasies go way too far and it breaks me to tell you that. But guess what? Now you understand that my position here in this conference has nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with God's grace upon a sinner, which is what I am. See, that's beautiful. That's not something that hurts me. That's something that's awesome. And now you guys get to demonstrate grace, which I don't deserve, which is cool. I never exemplified confession in my life, so I started doing it. I started understanding how enjoyable it was. And I understand the first time I did it, I was terrified. I sat in Bo's back office and I was just like, oh man, like I, I have a problem. And, you know, like it was like all weird. But like now it's become a joy. After a while, after you exercise it, like anything else, it becomes easier to do. And it's not about me. It's a joy to glorify my Father. Okay? The next thing that I needed to know, I needed to know this, was amputation, was the idea of, man, I had to, I had to get rid of stuff. If you guys have your Bibles, I'm going to read this to you guys because I want you guys to understand what is so serious about this. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 29. And the interesting th- part about this is this is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The preface to this is he's actually talking about adultery of the heart which perks my ears up. So now I need to pay attention. The very next verse, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. In Mark 9, he adds a foot there. He says, if your right foot causes you to sin, hack that off too. 
But the thing that I want you guys to get from this is not, Jesus is not telling you to amputate stuff. Like literally go to a doctor and be like, hey, dude, this hand is the problem, man, and I need to get rid of it. Okay, if the hand was the problem, then that's a dumb solution because you got a second hand, right? If the eye was the problem, then you got a second eye. So obviously that's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about, what he's trying to get his disciples to get, and I hope it's something that you guys get tonight, is that today, should I say, is that your sin is a big deal. It's not something small. See, people trying to demean sin. Well, I just watch it every now and then. Well, how much do you lust, dude? How often do you watch it when you're at the store, when you're watching TV? How often do you watch it when you're in bed with your wife? How often do you watch it? It's a problem. Okay, It's not a little thing. It's not a minor cold. This is a full-grown, cancerous thing that's growing in your life, and it will kill you and everything else in your life. It will. Not it might, it will if you don't deal with it. Okay, This is an infectious sore that will destroy you. Sin is not something light. It's not something to be trifled with. Okay? And I wish, I wish you guys could, I, I'm now a member of Setting Captives Free, and I, and I go and I mentor men online, and I have men in my groups that, the Tuesdays and Thursdays that me and Bo like, um, coordinate and things like that, which is just beautiful ministry, but the thing is, is I get to see the end result. I get to see that guy who's 80 and who's never dealt with it. And now his whole life has burnt as a result. His kids don't want to talk to him. His wife hates him. She may stick with him, but she hates him. Everything that he loved has been taken from him because he wasn't willing to deal with it. You've got to put your shoulder to the plow. If you want to deal with this sin, you've got to see it for what it is. It's radical. What does Jesus say? It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than what? Your whole body to be cast into hell. That's a pretty serious statement. That's pretty serious. Your whole body to be cast into hell. Eternal hell. Separation from God. That's a very serious issue. Your sin is serious. And it needs to be treated as such. Okay? And until you're willing to see it the way that Jesus sees it, you're not going to be free. When I came back from Afghanistan and I realized that, I was like in 1 Peter 4 where he's like, dude, I've spent enough of my past life in my sin. I was done with it. I didn't care what it took. I didn't care what I had to sacrifice, what I had to saw off. I was willing to do anything because I hated it that much. I saw what it did to me. And I hated it. He says the love of God produces a hatred for sin. Do you hate your sin? Do you hate it to that point where you'd see amputation as a joy? I'm getting rid of this thing. Yes, you know, you get rid of it. Man, I've watched porn on my computer enough. I need to get a filter on that thing. I hate it. I hate it. You need to have that, that desire in your heart. Man, this thing is way too radical. This thing has taken way too much from me, and it will take. It'll take. It'll steal from you until there's nothing left. But when you give it up, and when you amputate, when you make these steps, and I will say this, amputation is different for everyone. For me, amputation was putting a filter on my computer and giving the password to Bo. That was my amputation, which I still have. That's my amputation. Now, can you guys see in that how that glorifies God? Because when I tell you guys I need a filter on my computer, does it make me look weak or strong? It makes me look pretty weak, doesn't it? There are tons of people out there who are strong enough to not need a filter. I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. But it's not about glorifying me anymore. I don't care if you guys think I'm weak. In fact, 
I like that you think that I'm weak. That God may receive all honor, praise, and glory in me. That's beautiful. Why would I want anything less? Why would I want you guys to glorify something less than the Almighty? Whenever something good happens in my life, I want Him to receive all honor, praise, and glory. So I amputate. And it's beautiful and it's joyful. I got rid of that thing. And you know what? Like almost the very next day, I was like, man, I really want to watch porn. And I looked at my computer. I realized I can't. I was like, yes. It was so exciting. I was like, yeah, I can't. And I went to my Bible and I started reading. I was like, that's awesome. You know? But if I could, then guess what? Best case scenario, I would have struggled for hours trying not to. And they would have been like planted in my brain. And I would have been thinking about it. Oh, man, no, I can't. No, I can't. And it would have been just this hardcore battle. And I wouldn't have given in. That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is I would have given in to it. So where's the benefit in that? You see, this is a grace in your life. It's motivated by the joy of Christ for you. It's something that you can. I don't deserve this either. I deserve to battle each and every day with those things that I used and brought into my life to cause me to stumble every single day. I deserve that. But God in his graciousness gives me this as a joy. You don't have to. I'm here to tell you that. You don't have to keep falling in the same exact way over and over again. And in fact, I like in Hebrews 12 where he likens these things to weights. Man, what kind of a runner, if he was serious about it, he's going to the Olympics and he's all amped, he's like, yeah, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to take this 50-pound bag of DVDs with me because I really like them and I don't want to get rid of them. Like, dude, aren't you going to slow down? Well, I really like these DVDs, though. <laughs> Is that how you're treating your porn problem? Or your drug problem? Or your alcohol problem? Is that going to help? Is that beneficial? Now, what? Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, we don't chase after a perishable crown. We chase after an eternal crown. Paul raises it up. Hey, that Olympian, he may be going after a little bit of glory and praise. You guys are going after eternal glory and praise. Where you're going to stand before God Almighty. And he's going to look at you and he's going to say, well done. When he looks at amputation, he's going to say, well done, man. That was awesome. Hey, I know that that meant a lot to you. I know that unfiltered internet was very important to you. I know that these DVDs, I know that whatever it is that you got to cut out, I know that that was important to you, but you gave it up for me. Thank you. That's beautiful. Now, those of you guys who are married or in relationships, have you ever had someone give up something for you? Doesn't that make you happy? It could be something as small as a habit. Man, I really hate it when you hawk loogies. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so, so you stop. For the betterment of that other person, you're like, whoa, man, they appreciate that. You know, and that gives you a lot of joy. And, and just like if you give it up and they see that you give it up, man, that brings a lot of joy to them too. Wow, he cares about me. That he'd give that up, even if it's something small. Your beloved's going to appreciate what you do. He is. Amputation's beautiful. It's beautiful. I know it's like a hardcore picture. You should have seen the other pictures we found of amputation. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to show it to you guys. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't find any like medium pictures of amputation. But I mean, I do like how it expresses the radical nature of what is going on. And think about this too: the people that Jesus were talking to, they were blue-collar workers, right? Fishermen, farmers, you know, people like that. How effective a farmer are you if you hop, if you lop off your right hand, your right foot, and you pluck out your right eye? Are you going to be awesome? You've just destroyed your what? Your livelihood. Is God that valuable to you? You're like, man, dude, my job has a woman in it that I've committed an affair with. 
I got to get rid of it. Hey, man, when I'm at work, there's porn that's accessed easily. I got to get rid of that thing. And God's better. But God's better than that. That's how radical this step is. If it costs you your job, if it costs you things that you love more than anything else, if it costs you relationships, get rid of them. Because Jesus is better. He's better. He's more enjoyable than all that. He'll fill the gap. I guarantee you he will. The thing is, if you haven't been experiencing the greater pleasure of God, may I submit to you it's because there's compromise in your life. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You know, love one and hate the other. You can't serve two. You can't have porn and Jesus. You can't. Doesn't mean he's going to reject you. Doesn't mean he's going to stop loving you. What it means is that you're going to stop loving him. And you can't enjoy someone that you don't love. Your love's going to grow cold for him. The more you engage in your sin, the more your love's going to grow cold for him. And he loves you. It's worth it. It's worth it to cut it off. Now the next thing is beautiful. Repentance. The idea of repentance. And for those of you guys who don't know, repentance in the Bible is turning away from something and turning towards something else. That's all it means. It means to change. Biblically, what that refers to is me going to my sin, saying, this is wrong. Confessing, being broken over it, and then turning to Jesus. I want you guys to go to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he laid very heavy truths on the Corinthian church, we should say. And in 2 Corinthians, he exhorts them for how they took it. Okay? So if you guys go there. Now, in verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced and what in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Isn't that beautiful? Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. He goes on to say that worldly sorrow produces death. What worldly sorrow is, is a focus on self. Why are you sorry about what you did? Why are you sorry that you viewed porn? Is it because your wife's bummed out now? That's a focus on the world, isn't it? That's not focused on the glory of God. It's a focus on the world. Are you sorry that you lost your job? Are you sorry that you lost your reputation? Are you sorry that you got caught? Like Bill Clinton. Is that why you're sorry? Is that what's producing the sorrow? The Bible says the only thing that that kind of sorrow can produce, it may produce brokenness. You may cry over it. You may weep over it. It may give you an inclination to be, man, I'm going to go after this thing. But guess what? It's not going to produce a focus on Christ. And it doesn't matter how vehement you are about your struggle, if your focus is not on Jesus Christ, it's doomed to failure. You're going to go right back to it. Godly sorrow is a focus on God. God, I'm sorry I did this because it's against you. That's why Psalm 51 says, before you and you only have I sinned. It's not because David was saying, hey God, before you and you only have I sinned, so before you and you only do I confess. That's what I took that verse to mean, because I was a sinner. But I didn't realize that he wrote it in the Bible, which everyone reads. So that logic doesn't make any sense. But he's saying, man, before you and you only have I sinned, God. In other words, yes, I sinned against these other people, but the only reason why that's wrong is because you exist and you love them. The only reason why it's wrong for you to sin against your wife in this way is because God exists and he loves your wife and he hates the fact that you're hurting her. He hates the fact that the women that you're watching are literally 
engaging in things that separate them from God and you're getting pleasure out of it. He hates that. They're engaging in abusive things that destroy them. And that is where you're getting your pleasure. How sick is that? And yet that's what I did for many, many years. It's very sick. The idea of recognizing my sin is before God, that's important. I've sinned before you, God. I'm wrong because you say it's wrong. I've taken glory from you. I'm sorry. That's the first step to repentance. The second step to repentance is now realizing this is wrong. Now I'm going to go to what's right. Because you can never solve a problem by staring at the problem, right? And like I said, sin's like a cancer. How are you going to solve cancer by just continually looking at the MRI? Man, this looks really bad. This looks really bad. Let me look at it again. It looks really bad. And you just keep looking at it again and again. It's not going to fix the problem. You've got to go to the solution. The solution is Christ. You've got to go to Him. I turn away from my sin. I turn to Him. Here's something crazy about repentance. Jesus said there's more celebration in heaven over one sinner who comes to repentance than a thousand who need no repentance. You want to know why sin's still in your life? Because every single time you see your sin and you see Jesus is better, that brings multitudes of glory to him. In fact, he throws a party for you. It may not seem like a big deal, but you're, this is not a one-time thing. This is not, oh, porn's wrong. Psh, done. Over. Repented of it. Over. I wish that's how it was, but it's not. This is a daily thing. And all the things I've been telling you guys, those are daily things. They're to be a part of your Christian walk. It's not enough to just cut off one thing. You've got to cut off all the little things that lead to that big thing. Repentance is a daily thing. Seeing God is better. You're going to be tempted. See God is better. And then he throws a party in heaven for you. That's pretty cool, right? It's like, way to go. He's like hugging his angels. Look at that, dude. He said no. That's awesome. And he's excited. He's excited about it. And I want to excite my father. I want to make him happy. I want to do things that bless him. Did you know that you could bless Jesus? You can make him happy? Did you also know that you can grieve him? You can make him sad? Not that he's angry at you, but you made him sad. And those of you who are parents are going to understand that. Your kids can do something that make you happy, right? And they like give them, giving you a hug and like, oh, I love you. Oh, that's awesome. They make you happy. Not that your love was contingent on them doing that. You would always love them. But that made you happy. But if they do something like, I don't know, pick on their little sister or something like that, that makes you sad. It doesn't change the fact that you love them, but it just makes you sad that they did that. I wish you didn't. That's how Jesus looks at you. I wish you didn't. There are better things. When I was going through recovery, there was a repeated phrase in my head, and it was, don't miss out on my blessings today. And Jesus was up in heaven like, man, let's hang out today. Let's have fun today. Don't miss out on our special time because you're too busy in your sin. Don't miss out on Jesus being awesome and enjoying him because you're too busy focusing on how guilty you are when he's covered it. At least to the final point, the cross. The finality of it. When Jesus went to the cross, he said, it is finished. You guys are going to need to hold this in your heart. I read Isaiah 53 all the time because I understand the importance, the impact of it. I want to read it to you guys tonight so that you understand this, this idea of how awesome it was, what he did for us. Isaiah 53, as, as a lot of you guys know, details the sufferings of Jesus about 700 years before he was born, which is pretty intense. 
By Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says this, Surely He has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Isn't that beautiful? On the cross, it is finished. You can't add to it. I don't seek freedom from porn because I think I could add to that. How could I? Isn't that blasphemous? Hey, God, that was a good start to get me to heaven, but I could get into super heaven if I do really good now. That's what some cults believe, isn't it? But yet, how many of us practice that? We may not say it outwardly that that's what we're doing, but we treat God like that. We treat him like a boss or a CEO. We put in our good deeds and he gives us back wages, but that's not how it works. There's only one good deed. There's only one righteous act, and it's that. My righteousness comes by faith alone in that. That's what sets me free. That though I sin, I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved. I'm righteous. I'm a child of God. And by the way, that term, child of God, which all of us are if we've accepted him, that is the greatest title you will ever receive in your entire life. Husband, father, pastor, friend, whatever else, those are awesome. But child of God, that is beyond anything. You were adopted into his family, and it was given to you. You didn't have to do anything for it. You didn't have to earn it, and it can't be taken away from you. That's beautiful, because what he did, what he did, forgiveness was given to you. Now, again, Satan's going to try to convince you that that's not enough. You're going to fall, and Satan's going to be like, look what you did. Look how horrible you are. Look at, look at this, and look at that. You'll never be enough. Well, you're right. In my own strength, I will never be enough. But God has made me more than enough in his love. And it actually, you see, guilt and shame, they may seem like things that are righteous. When you sin, you feel like a hypocrite just going right back to God and praying. You feel like a hypocrite. But in Hebrews 4.16, it says, Therefore we go boldly before the throne of grace. Boldly before the throne of grace. Right after I sin, I could go right into God's presence and say, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. And he will be faithful to forgive you. He loves you. But you know what bums him out? When he sees his love struggling under condemnation and sin that he already bore in his own flesh. The price was already paid. Why are you still bearing it? That bums him out. That hurts him. He's like, man, I've already taken it. Why are you taking it upon yourself now? Like you can do better. And if you want the fullness of judgment, then stop believing in him. But for me, what he did for me was sufficient. And that's another reason why confession helps. When I tell people, I tend to forget this. Even though I teach it and I pray all the time, I tend to forget it. Because I don't feel that way. When I blow it, I don't feel that way. And it's important for me when I confess that people will tell me, dude, you are that way. That helps me. And they pray for me that I see things that way. That helps me get back up. Proverbs 24, 16 says, A righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. By the wicked, they fall by calamity. The difference between a righteous and a wicked man is not your sin. It's what you do with it. The righteous man understands his position in Christ, and he gets back up. The wicked man doesn't know what getting back up looks like. They're always on the ground. That's beautiful for me as a sinner to understand that. See, that brings glory to the cross. You notice how every world religion, every belief system basically says that you're a good person. 
You just need a little elbow grease. Isn't that what they all say? And Buddhism, Krishna, Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witness, they all say that you're basically good, but you could be better with our teachings. Grace tells you you're bankrupt. You're not good. But that God can make you good. That flies in the face of everyone who thinks that they're righteous in their own standing. That's why the Pharisees hated Jesus. Whenever you feel yourself looking at someone else's sin and being like, well, I sin in this way, but not in that way, you're falling into that same pharisaical mindset that says that righteousness comes through works. And it is an offense to Jesus, an offense to the cross. You want to give glory to the cross. Accept it as a gift and allow its righteousness to reign in you. The most beautiful thing about God is the fact that he sees the end from the beginning. He's able to treat me, back when I was 13 and I didn't believe in him, as if I was still his son. He still reached out to me in that way. He still loved me in that way. He could see me as if I was already saved because he knew the end. There's a reason why God doesn't tell you the end for your friends and family. God, just tell me if they're going to be saved. He's not going to tell you. Why? Because you're human and you're incapable of treating them that way if you knew the end. If I knew for a fact my brother was never going to come back to God, I would treat him that way. Why would I keep reaching out to him? Yet God does something really interesting. He hopes all things. He reaches out to my brother as if he can be saved, even if he can't. God sent prophets to prophesy to his people as if they would listen, knowing that they wouldn't. That's love beyond anything that you and I are capable of. Because to do that, to hope for something that's not going to happen, is to engage in pain. Mind-blowing amounts of pain. To hope for something that will ultimately fail. It hurts, but God does it. So because of that, because of that grace that shines in you, he gives you the ability to see people the same way. I could treat people with that same amount of grace that the blood of Christ covers them and I could see them as spotless because that's how he sees them. Engaging in love, engaging in agape love means engaging in the heart of God. Enabling me to love someone the way that he does. Now, when I understand all these things put together, the, the, the walking towards Christ in all these manners, okay, this is not a list of steps. It's not a formula that, oh, if you do all these things, you'll be good. It's not a formula. These are ways. These are tools. These are truths that God has shown you and me that we should walk in if we want to be closer to him. And you see, freedom is just a fruit of this of a relationship with God. Abiding in the vine produces fruit. One of the fruits is love. Love conquers lust. It's the only thing that conquers lust. Willpower doesn't conquer lust. It fails. And logic doesn't cover lust, but love, God's true love, conquers it. It puts it to death. And it's beautiful to purify your heart, to see the world the way that he does. That is gorgeous. Now all of a sudden, I'm not looking at everyone for what they can give me. I'm looking, man, now my joy is in serving Hebrews 12, a little after, that, that verse that we keep quoting, says that for the joy set out before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus looked at the cross as joy for what was going to be gained as a result. I'm gaining a bride. He looked at it, he's like, man, this is awesome. This is the bridal price that i got to pay for my bride. I love this. Not that it was enjoyable, but it produced joy. 
Now I can look at the same thing. Self-sacrifice equals joy for me now. The more I get to lay down, the more joy I get. Because God's love is in me. He's the only one that could do that. You can't do it, but he can do it in you. I enjoy laying down. Hey, I want to do this, but you know what? For your sake, I'm not going to. It's joy to lay down. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loved the church. The thing that most people don't understand is, do you think that verse stops being true in the marital bed? Or do you believe what I believed? That sex equals lust. And there's no way that love can engage inside of the marital bed. Now, Katie's going to talk a lot about this, which is cool. But that idea that I want you guys to have is this. Love is the only thing that's going to set you free. Love in every aspect. Love in relation with people. Love in relation with your spouse. is the only thing that's going to set you free. Because love starts with God. This is how you walk in it. This is how you do it. These things right here is how you do it. And I didn't make it up. It's all in this big book right here that you guys all brought with you. Reading it doesn't help, but applying it sure does. Last thing I want to share with you guys is this. Hope, which is important. If you don't have hope, then you're never going to move forward. 2 Corinthians 4 says this. Verse 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says, for it is God, God, very God, who spoke light out of darkness, who created it. And notice he didn't suggest that light came out of darkness. It wasn't like, if you would. That same God who commanded light to shine in the darkness looked at you and commanded that light shine in you, that you may know him. He commands it. He's in you. He fights with you and for you. See, when I fought on my own, the only thing I could find is failure. But when I fight with God, the only thing I could find is success. That's the only thing I could find. Because God doesn't fail. And the more I move forward, the more joy I get. God has commanded light to shine in you guys. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Our hope is built on Jesus. Even through your failures, your hope is still founded in Him. And if your hope is founded in Him, it can never be taken away from you. And that's awesome. Okay? Um, I'm going to pray. But I think we got break after this, right? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Katie signed it at me. I don't know that sign. <laughs> all right. Dear God, I want to thank you so much for, for all your amazing truths and all your beauty, God. I pray that we would truly see you today as, as the greatest joy and pleasure in our lives, Lord. May we walk in you and, and follow you with all of our hearts. And in your name, amen.